this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. What's happening, my reef brother, Mark Vanderwall? How's it going, man? I am chomping at the bit for today's reef therapy session topic because it's something that I'm very, very diligent about. I would say my entire reef aquarium experience, aquarium experience, is uh, characterized by how diligent I am about uh, aquarium maintenance. So I think we do have a little bit of reef chatting, some lighthearted reef chatting, and then we'll uh, dive into our main topic because we have a lot to get through. So um, there's a couple things you want to tell us about your tank, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, I, well, before we started recording, I was about to say, you know, I'm, I'm eating crow a little bit on coral feeding, you know, because I mean, I've tinkered with coral feeding and was like, okay, yeah, you know, and then I would just, it would go away. Like I'd stop doing it. Um, and I just never really saw much, um, benefit in my tanks, but, um, I went, you know, if I I think the one thing about you and me is that, you know, we, we can have a strong opinion about something, but we're always second guessing that opinion and challenging that opinion internally. And we're welcoming of having our minds changed. Right. Anyway, just for giggles, I took, um, I brought in some corals that, I don't typically keep that I think are, you know, very easy to feed, right? So you're talking about your micromusas, um, a lobo, um, I'm trying to think of what else I, I've been tinkering. But nevertheless, I started to just, you know, do a little bit of sustained feeding in a separate little, in my little quarantine tank. And mm-hmm. okay, yeah, I mean, you know, with the micromusas, it's hard to, I mean, I'm not doing a, a defined experiment, right? Where I have, you know, a baseline or um, what do you call it? A constant in an experiment um, where you have a coral where you're not feeding. and you're a control. Control, that's the word I'm looking for. I don't have a control, but just just observationally speaking, that those corals do seem to grow better and faster, you know, with some direct feeding. And I don't think that they won't, you know, sustain in a nice reef tank without, you know, like I think they'd do fine without feeding in a tank, right? And I think that's sort of the camp I was always in is like, I'm just adding more nutrients and, you know, the corals do fine on fish poop and water nutrients and photosynthesis through their, you know, uh, zooxanthellae and all that. But but it's just an interesting experiment where I was like, okay, I can see where this is beneficial. And that that's, it's also kind of addictive if you have it in a setup where it's easy to do it. You know, like I don't want on my big reef, I don't want to call me lazy, but I don't want to um, always have to turn off pumps and spot feed. I don't want to do the broadcast feeding thing. And but in like a, a little tank where you can just kind of get a pipette in there really easy. It is kind of fun, you know, so eating crow on that a little bit like I can see that I don't think it's necessary, but I definitely think it's hugely beneficial for certain corals. Um, I'm you still, tried um, the yeah. Brightwell Aquatics uh, Reef Frenzy LP pellet. No, I have the Fauna Marin ones. So yeah, Fauna Marin. I don't. I don't know why their pellets are like 
more expensive than drugs. Like it's just really, really expensive. I get it that it's cold processed and extruded and highest quality ingredients, but man, they're they're smoking that crack for twenty five dollars for a little jar of uh, of pellets. Um, so yeah, I was really excited when Brightwell Aquatics released their LP pellet. It's it's big enough that you can actually break it up. Um, I don't feed my LPS nearly as much as I used to, um, as far as like target feeding, um, by my anemones for sure. That's a really cool pellet because it's a little bit larger and um, it sinks quickly, and it just lands quickly in the anemone and it fall, and it closes up and it's perfect. It's it's awesome for that purpose. I think I'll have to try those. Um, I think the big question mark I still have is, and maybe some skepticism is. You know, soft corals that have small polyps, SBS, like like Montiparas and stuff. I haven't, I've, I've tinkered with them even a little bit, right? Um, but I'm not really seeing the same kind of um, response or gains in that department. And so, I, I don't know. I don't, <clears throat> I don't want to get it, go too far into that subject, but it's just those are still have some question marks about like, are they just sort of like Xenia where they're, they're not really trying to filter particulates, but they're trying to filter dissolved nutrients in the water, mm-hmm. right? With those fans or I don't know. Um, the other one I was sort of eating crow on is like I, I was really pissed off at my Deltek skimmer. Um, and I'm not, I'm still not 100% happy with how it's performing, but skimming it wet um, and turning up that DC pump has made it perform better. Oh, nice. Um, and I think the problem there is I have a deep sump and my brain logically thinks in a deeper sump, you actually want to turn your pump down, but raise your water level so that it's less turbulent inside, but you get the foam at the right height. But I think that was going against me where it was caking up the walls, right, Mm -hmm. of the skimmer cup. Right. And stuff would make it into the cup, but once there was enough caking, right, game over. And, And the wiper was good for the... What do you call it? The uh, the neck, but it wasn't. The lid is caked too, and that just kind of kills the foam production. But right. if you skim it wet, it seems to kind of hold its own. Of course, your skimmate volume is higher, but it's also lighter, right? So it's like eh, one little you know. thing I'd like to mention about protein skimmer operation is I don't think there's ever been a set of instructions released by any protein skimmer manufacturer that will help you dial in your protein skimmer and your foam production in the way that is either wet or dry. Um, And something that's really come to my attention as I've reviewed skimmers over the last 10 years, I mean, I don't think there's a skimmer I haven't used used for a while over the last uh, dozen years. Um, Protein skimmers perform very differently here at elevation. Oh, I bet. That's interesting. The air is much thinner and... You know, for a while there, I think it was a NIOS that really started tipping me off to it because they would just, they were just so loud and um, they would overflow all the time. And other protein skimmers using uh, the Eden pump. So NIOS names there, I think the Viper and Delua had, was it the first AC Delua's that were using a version of the Eden pump. And um, I found that all I needed to do was throttle that air. And, you know, that allowed the pump to really um, 
achieve a specific ratio between the air and water mixture. Um, so that's something to consider at higher elevations. And I don't think you have to be too high. I mean, imagine um, pretty much all the protein scammer manufacturers are uh, doing their R&D close enough to sea level. But even if you're half a mile high, um, you know, the air density is so much thinner and in a mile high and in two miles high, it's so much thinner that the pump will choke on air and it won't get that right, not that nice balance. So, but besides that air water mixture, um, you know, there's, uh, a continuum from really dry skimming to really wet skimming. And I, I've never seen any protein skimmer directions really, um, give you something informative, right? They always kind of target that, um, that middle zone that's going to be safe for, for everybody. It, operating a protein skimmer is a really, uh, nuanced thing. <laughs> I don't want to compare it to being a race guard driver, but for your tank, for your salinity, for your elevation and resulting air pressure and then what you want to do, man, you really have to know that protein skimmer. So I understand people's preferences for one skimmer over another, for sure. And I think your experience with the Delta kind of speaks volumes. You know, you're running a certain way. And um, I always think that if you're in a deeper sump, um, you're going to have less airflow due to the uh, the head right. pressure. Yeah. Right. That's so it's something you have to fine tune. I, you know, the thing about a turbulent skimmer is it's, um, and what I mean by turbulence is like when you're looking in the bubbles and it's just churning, right? Mm -hmm. If you get that to, um, high enough up the neck, like I feel like you get into over, um, overflow zone where, you know, one little odd, um, surficant in your tank, right? Uh, a coral spawn or something will just set it into overflow and then you're, you're dealing with a mess. So I've always been paranoid about that. And I thought, you know, the nice thing about a DC pump is you can turn that turbulence down, right? And just have a yeah. nice <clears throat> fine mix of bubbles, but it's just nice and stable. But I think that was my downfall. And once I made it turbulent, I mean, maybe now I'm sort of in the danger zone if my clam or something decides to spawn that I, you know, end up with a, a mess the next day. But it does at least seem to be just consistent where I have. It doesn't have a float switch, does it? No. See, I think that's a sin nowadays. If you have a you know DC power protein skimmer, a octopus, reef octopus, now known as Octo, they've had that built in and you know part of their protein skimmers for I don't know since 2015, and it's just a simple thing. It's just, I mean, it can't even cost a dollar. <laughs> you know, at the manufacturing end, can't even cost a dollar to just put a little, you know, shutoff switch that you can put in your skimmer cup that's going to automatically shut it off. Um, uh, that's just such a simple thing. But yeah, d for me, definitely the biggest benefit for the DC first is, is uh, quiet. Oh, yeah. much quieter. Um, but then, especially if you enjoy tinkering with the protein skimmers, the interplay of um, pump speed, water level, and then air intake, um, all those three things will really kind of give you a, a really fine-tune uh, the, the skimmer performance uh, on your tank. Yeah, it has the, um, the airflow bends into uh, the water level meter so that mm -hmm. if the water level gets too high, it chokes out the air intake. Mm -hmm. But the problem is with like surfacants and, you know, when your protein skimmer goes not nuts, technically your water level, I don't think really goes up. It's just the, the foaminess, if that's yeah. a word, goes up, right? So it doesn't really help you in those kind of moments. Like if you were to add, you know, um, 
uh, red slime remover, right? I mean, like mm-hmm. we've all been there and you open your skimmer wide open, right? But yet you're still overflowing because of- I don't even try. Yeah. I don't even try. Protein skimmers go off if I'm doing any kind of treatment. And I'll add separate air stones because I feel like, uh, you know, it's my understanding that compressed air from an com- air pump which compresses air is like diving deeper, right? You're going to have a lot more oxygen um, uh, dissolving into your water than uh, a basically ambient pressure protein skimmer. And, you know, even you let it go two days without skimmer, turn the skimmer as low as possible, chuck the air as much as possible. You still get skimmer bubbles coming out the top or coming out the bottom. It's just, you just have to write it out. Yeah. I just usually have it overflow into a bucket with the hose and then I just keep emptying the bucket and it's basically like I water change through the skimmer when I do when I have done something like a red slime remover and it yeah works. a nice little concentrated water change or when you're using putty right same thing the uh, epoxy stuff will sometimes mm-hmm. anyway those are the two things where I was like alright you know maybe I spoke too soon on those two matters but it's just you know I, I've gotten away without feeding for so long and I was like, eh, why, why bother? You know, and then there's so many corals where I still don't really fully understand, or I don't think anybody fully understands what a sinularia eats, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, for for certain, cert, some groups of corals, um, let's say, you know, just to pick some extremes, um, like a really thin-tissued leptoceris, you can feed it. You can watch some of the food particles trail into the mouth, but the mouths might be, you know, in the low light setting, they might be a few centimeters apart. And you're just like, man, there's not really that much food being pumped into the the overall colony. Um, But meanwhile, you want the juiciest zoanthids or just like the most luscious uh, lord corals, like a, a starving lord coral or one that's in decent conditions but not really being fed and one that's in um, maybe low energy and being fed a lot, those two corals look almost totally different. The huge, huge trumpet-like polyps yeah. of uh, lord corals, um, you can kind of tell, you know, especially at the reef shows or certain shops, who's really diligently <laughs> feeding their corals. And the thing is, you don't have to do it often, even just like yeah. once a week, you know, the coral can hold on to a lot of nutrients um, and a lot of the um, – uh, well, nutrients from, from the food for a while that it's still kind of processing. So it doesn't even have to be that tedious. Like even if you uh, like target fed certain corals once a month um, that are, no, you know, uh, photosynthetic corals, definitely your NPS corals, they want to be fed all the time, all the yeah. time if you want them uh, really open. But uh, yeah, that's, that's the, the one of the funnest parts about corals is seeing uh, how differently one coral can look from one tank to another. And so a little bit along those lines, um, right now, um, before I forget, I'm just letting everybody know that uh, first big reef aquarium event of the year is coming up, Reef Stock in Denver, uh, March 5th and 6th. Uh, reef Stock 2020 was like the last big event before, you know, our world got turned upside down. And uh, so this is our first Reef Stock in almost two years. And we're like super excited. We've got lots of great companies and um, products launching. Um, I have a lot of help this year, so I want to be able to enjoy the show more than just running everything and uh, kind of being scrambled. Um, so if you want more information about Reefstock, uh, go to our website, reefstock.show in Denver, and uh, then we'll have one in Australia as well uh, later on this year. Nice. But along those lines of spreading corals out, um, yesterday, 
two days ago, I went to Aquatic Heart with Chris Cap, and I took down um, kind of a yellow tentacled maroon Bernard Pora and a kind of blue stocked pink polyped and pink tentacled Goniopora to get fragged out. And that was so rewarding because I remember distinctively buying both of those as frags at reef shows. And um, the, the pink one, I remember I just love, fell in love with it because it was subtle. It had um, kind of re- a lot of blue accents inside um, and just really bright pink polyps. There is nothing red about it. It is bright pinky, pinky pink. So it's I don't name corals. But when it when we have more than one running around and there's frags here and there and I'm sharing them with someone, uh, I come up with the name. So I got this coral like six years ago. I've been growing it all this time. Finally came up with the name for it, Candy Floss, because, you know, it's like cotton candy, uh, pink and blue. But candy cotton, cotton candy, there's so many corals named that. I always try to do something a little different. So I went to Chris Caps. We hacked it all up. Uh, I have the main colony still. Um, I have two new uh, mother grow out pieces and then three frags like large frags when we cut frags they're all like two inches by one inch you know <laughs> we were like joking when we were we did a whole video actually about fragging these corals i took it over at his place because he had the xl version of the griffin bandsaw um these yeah, corals I saw were, were a video two. where um you did with him on a orange bower banky yeah that was two years ago and yeah. at the end of that video we're like oh let's do gani next i'm like oh yeah here we go <laughs> here we are with gani's next um, but yeah, so now he has some and he does really good on some of the lower light, lower energy stuff. Um, and now I have several pieces that I can sprout through different tanks and share with some people. Um, but it's a really beautiful, beautiful, never red, pink, pink, pink Ghani. Not like the pink. It's also like the metallic fluorescent pink, not the, um, more pastel-y pink that you've seen certain strains come in recently. And so, yeah, no, it's just like incredibly rewarding to grow a frag to a point where it needs to be fragged and now my colony it i mean just it's missing an inch off the bottom but now i know that there's like 20 to 30 frags between what i have and what he has you know and he told me he like gave a piece to every one of his employees i believe that's what i understood and it's just super cool to just like share that around like i it's as pink as the maze balls is orange it's really, really, right, really. I want nice to crack of that. <laughs> you sold me on it. <laughs> oh no, it's 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 really nice. So, um, so yeah, we got restock coming up in six weeks or so. Uh, again, that's in Denver. Um, did a video with Chris Cap, which we're still processing on sharing the corals, so we can see you know how that does in my highlight, low nutrient, high energy tank versus his lower light, lower energy, higher nutrient tank um, and share some with you. And then uh, finally got my hands on some like fish that are really special to me. And that was the Brazilian flameback angelfish that I rode up uh, today. I think I got them on Monday of last week and God, they just hit the ground. Awesome. Four of them, sorry, three of them in a 10 gallon tank. And I just put two large resin decorations in there, you know, kind of covered with like fake coral. So it looks kind of neat. And they just get along. A 10-gallon QT tank with uh, uh, Akamai <laughs> uh, KPS small water pump. I just bypassed the controller. That thing was always dumb. I just It's plugged in for constant flow. But yeah, they're just – I'm guessing that they must have been held in Brazil for a while because they're just – 
they're ready to eat and they're already begging for food just way early on. They weren't like fresh wild fish that somebody's played hot potatoes with. They were collected and they had some aquarium experience before they got here. And uh, now they look amazing. I even turned a light on, put an extra light on them today to take uh, some pictures, you know? So it's like, that's a really bright in their tank now. And um, yeah, they're just acting like good aquarium fish. And I have African flame back in my main fish display. And if you're looking carefully or, or casually, same fish. If you look carefully, you're like, all right, Brazilian flameback is a little bit larger, a little bit light bluer. The gold part is less orange, more yellow. There's more of it. It's got a blue tail. The profile's a little bit more rectangular versus kind of really rounded and oval shaped for the African flameback. And those are the kind of nuances that just really um, tickle my like fish fancy. Like, have you, have totally. you decided where you're going to put them? Because I know you're you're hesitant to put them in a coral tank, right? Um, or no? Uh, I have two tanks that are candidates. So the mangrove tank, it, it spends a lot of time with daylight lighting. I think that'd be awesome for them. That would be a cool tank, yeah. Um, or the tank next to it, my kitchen sink aquarium, where it's not really a rhyme or reason. This is all just different kinds of corals, which... So right now, the, currently the mangrove is filled with uh, all soft corals and leather corals, which if they picked on, I really wouldn't care. <laughs> and then the other tank has so many different corals that almost certainly they will find something that they like. But I'm leaning towards the mangrove tank because if they're doing well in a 10-gallon tank, I think they'll do awesome in this you know two-foot shallow lagoon cube. Um, and that tank, mostly it just that tank um, is in day, under daylight spectrum so much longer. I'll really be appreciate um, the full appearance of those fish. But yeah, it's just really nice to get them. And I've, I've been, you know, it's weird. It's like they're, they're rarer than so many of the so-called rare fish, like, like uh, koi scopus tanks. Those things are so common now, but you still can't touch one for Five, eight hundred, twelve hundred plus, and way more if they're very uh, fancy and showy. But I haven't seen Brazilian flamebacks in years. You know, it used to be um, an African flameback, maybe it'll cost you forty, fifty dollars, and then Brazilian flameback, maybe sixty to eighty dollars. You know, um, but now the Brazilian flamebacks are they should retail for maybe like one fifty to two hundred, but they're way more rare than so many of these uh, you know hype fish and. Uh, yeah, they just you know, tickle my fancy. I'm really glad I have them. I always thought it was funny, you know, like uh, Mauritian fish, the gem tanks would always command a high price. But in the same shipment, if you got some of the Mauritian um, tiger tail coral beauties, they were like reasonable, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, it's the same shipment. And how often do you see the Mauritian strain of coral beauties around, right? Like a mm -hmm. good one with a good tiger pattern. In my, like every... Um, Online retailer right now has gem tanks. And mm -hmm. I think Live Aquarius said they were from Madagascar, which I don't know the yeah, backstory so, on that. But um, but they're everywhere. I mean, but they're still $800. Well, so gem tanks were always rare in Mauritius. So I literally went okay, out to Mauritius back then. in 2013. We went on a dive and found two. They told me that was very unusual. We found two small gotcha. ones, no okay. big ones. And in Madagascar, they are the zebra soma. Yeah. Right. They are the dominant zebrasoma in that area. That's why they find occasional zebrasoma scopus hybrids, which are super neat. But, um, but yeah, it's kind of cool. They're also finding the tiger tail, uh, coral beauties over there and in some deep water forms in Madagascar and tiger angelfish. Yeah. Madagascar was, uh, 
a honeypot, a honeypot <laughs> of uh, uh, of exotic fish that we just never had a clue. I, I just remember today that they found a Dabelius angelfish in Madagascar a couple of years ago at 50 feet. Wow. A big one. It was almost too big. It was overgrown. It looked like a giant damselfish, just blue damselfish with a yellow tail. You just, that, that was the, the sad part, right? We've been looking at all these uh, really curated images of Dabelius angels th- in books throughout the years. And uh, then they find this big adult one in Madagascar. And I'm like, I know what it is. I know how special it is. But if you put that in a lineup of of pygmy angelfish, it would be kind of towards the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> a fish you'd want to actually keep. That's like that was, the, that was uh, interesting. I always thought the interruptus juvies were amazing, but as they get a little older, they they fade a little bit. You know, it's like the oh, they, um, they fade a lot. Yeah, they fade a lot. And except when when you have like a full blown nuptial male, they get like this crazy blue pattern on their face. Um, but they're like six inches at that point. Yeah, like a full grown. So. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, I think the last thing before we jump into our topic is I'm super looking forward to some fish from Papua New Guinea. They're getting, you know, just, I mean, it's almost like the whole catalog of Indo-Pacific clownfish strains. So not the Pacific, not the Indian Ocean, but Indo-Pacific species. Oh, my goodness. You know, black and regular Clark eyes, uh, black and kind of yellow accented saddlebacks. Um, they're do they're, they're finding all kinds of maroons that have this like almost lightning pattern on one of their bars. They're not crazy like the ones we've seen in the past, but man, if Matt Peterson would, could, you know, had had access to what they're catching now to cross with the original lightning, I wonder if the lightning strain would have been even more, um, like a, like a stronger phenotype of that particular strain. I don't know, but um, epaulette sharks, and I think it's, I mean, they're just getting started. They're going to do corals there too. And so I'm just, this is going to be super exciting. And, you know, here's another thing that's a super pet peeve of mine. Uh, people always say, uh, you know, buy captive bread or buy farm corals and fish. And uh, that's cutting out the people who live on the reef. And so one thing that Golden Ocean, the company that's operating in Papua New Guinea, dude, they were employing so many people. When you buy Papua New Guinea fish, that money is going to the people that live on the reef and it's, you know, keeping them from uh, resorting to more destructive um, exploitation jobs, right? Whether it's food fish or mining the reef or uh, creating lime for beetle nut by burning coral into Calquaster. <laughs> it's great. It's crazy. So I'm sure we'll have a little bit more to say about that, but uh, I think it's time to jump into our, our main topic. Don't you think? Yeah. Let's talk about some maintenance. Oh, such a, boy. Such a, you know, it, it's funny because it's such an important topic. I mean, in my opinion, you know, what kind of skimmer you choose or, or, or anything like that is almost less important than your level of maintenance, right? In terms of mm-hmm. having a healthy tank. So, yeah. I, I just want to set up a scenario. You've carefully selected your equipment. You found a perfect place for it in your house. You created the rockscape of your dreams. You've been growing out your own corals or acquired the corals and fish uh, that you, you know, have always wanted or wanted to grow out the most. And you've, you know, after a couple of years, you know, everything's grown to size that's really appreciable, looks amazing. You spent years, you know, maintaining your chemistry, your nutrients, um, you know, keeping everything in check. And then one day, one little thing 
like a broken heater or a broken pump or just any number of things could fail. And within a matter of a, a couple hours to a couple days, you could be, you won't lose it all, but like in most cases, like you could be set back almost to zero, not in terms of population, but in terms of just like starting over with your fish or your corals or having to flush whatever out, man, I, everybody knows the old adage that an ounce of profession is worth an ounce, a pound of cure, right? And I would, I would, I mean, my reef keeping style is like maintenance first, then husbandry second. You know, it's like, and overarching, I would say everything in, on my tanks gets in some ways like reinstalled about once a year. What I mean is, uh, you know, whatever product, maybe except for the lights, right? Because lights, they, they can pretty much coast, especially if you're not in a super dusty place. And now that now we're not replacing bulbs and, and lamps and, and ballast and stuff, at least we'll, we'll kind of coast forever. But like everything else, everything else gets inspected and turned over. And when I leave town, like I don't even give it a thought that something would go wrong here because it just... I can count on one hand the number of small issues um, we've experienced in about three and a half years. Yeah, I think um, personally speaking, the worst catastrophe I had, knock on wood, let's not tease Murphy here, um, was uh, a heater failure. And it wasn't that the heater died and I had a temperature issue. It was that the wire actually disconnected from the heating element and was mm. um, bare copper wire with with electricity going through it, sticking in my sump, right? Um, doing, I guess, it an electrolysis. The, the copper directly <laughs> into the water. Yeah. yeah, pure electrolysis, right? With salt I had water. A Gen 1 Coralia do the same thing. And what oh. was crazy is I actually accused some roommates at the time of doing things they knew they shouldn't. And it was like months later, I was uh, cleaning this pump and I found the, you know, the culprit. And it was just like, a copper bomb, dude, you are, <laughs> you are done, man. You might save some things, right? You're not saving the reef and it might be like a kind of a slow decline, but man, we have a, a everything that has a moving part needs is going to wear out. And if you don't service it in some way, shape or form, you're inviting uh, a higher chance of failure on that product. And I think we can actually start from the top on some slightly less obvious stuff yeah. that I think is super important part of reef aquarium maintenance. And that's keeping the glass clean. You know, for sure. We, we you know, last session we talked about uh, coasting. There's no problem with coasting, man. There's no, if you don't, you don't feel like killing a glass, maybe just clean the, clean the window. You know, just clean the little windows so you can see inside. Um but the first thing I'll say is, you know, get the right tools to clean the glass. That makes it so much easier. Yeah. You know, one perfect example for me is I use a lot of Tunzi Care magnets and they have um, kind of, uh, oh my God, what's it called? Fiberglass. I have a fiberglass reinforced plastic blade. And um, after about a year, I won't think that it's a year, but I'll be scrubbing the glass and I'll keep noticing that it's missing a spot. And it's, it takes me a couple of times to go back through and I'm all like, hmm, how long has it been since I changed that blade? And I got a little pile of them. I'll go change the blade and all of a sudden it's just like butter, just 
And I get that super easy clean. And when you have that experience of cleaning the glass, you know, with one pass on whatever, how many sides you have, that's going to make it much more likely that you will keep that glass clean. Yeah. And I like that they have the the metal add-on, the metal blade add-on, which I do not recommend for um, ultra clear glass that you would see on like a water box or a Red Sea, because if you get any kind of side swipe action, like you're going to be in trouble. But uh, Mm -hmm. for us regular glass users, like that thing is money. It just takes out coralline like no tomorrow. And and That's a really good point though. You really want to keep the motion perpendicular to the blade. Um. The other thing is, so it's not just, it's not just the tune to care magnet, but like every magnet is going to wear out, you know, not all of them are super replaceable, but, um, the other ones that I use a lot are flipper magnets and they all have a metal blade and, uh, you know, you can, I can get by a few times kind of bending it back into shape and a, the proper angle, but man, when you replace that blade once a year, you're talking of 10 bucks, less than a dollar amortized per month, it's going to make the cleaning process so much better. And, uh, you know, show, you, we work so hard for these tanks. So show some pride in your aquarium and wipe down the outside too. You know, if you don't want to get a $70 squeegee vac that does like magic for removing the saltwater residue, a basic squeegee, you can have, get one for, I don't know, a dollar from the general store or dollar store, you know? And I feel like it's super important to keep that glass clean because, um, it's going to help you one, enjoy your tank a lot more which means you'll pay a lot more attention uh, for sure. It's going to help with the spouse or partner approval of the aquarium. I know some people really have to um, uh, lobby for that, <laughs> if you can say. Um, but here's the important part. It's going to help you catch problems, mm-hmm. right? Um, you are not going to catch the early signs of ick, fish aggression, you know, through like torn fins or whatever. Yeah. Um, Coral parasites, you know, the tiny bites from acarating flatworms or the general appearance of Tagastes red bugs. If you have cloudy glass, you need that crystal clear glass to really catch it. And even to catch it through the corner of your eye, even if you clean your glass super well, that doesn't mean you have to sit there and like stare at it. Right. But when you have super clean glass, on both sides, most of the viewing panel, um, you're going to catch those early problems and be able to nip it in the bud before it spreads too far. And I feel like that's, you know, it's it's about having pride in your work, but also being able to observe everything that's going on. Well, and it's fundamental, right? We keep an aquarium so we can look at it and look through that glass and see mm-hmm. the inhabitants that we're caring for. So you want the best picture. Right? Absolutely. If you get lazy about the coralline near the substrate or, you know, even in the corners where you got to totally be careful. Fine. Totally fine. Yeah. But, I mean, you, you want to enjoy your tank and there's nothing worse than like looking at a tank and seeing like a haze of algae on the front glass. It's a good indicator too. Like I think, I think if you're going a couple of, if you're going a week and you're out, your glass is still clean, then maybe you've got a nutrient deficiency, right? Like maybe you got to oh, think yeah. about um, for sure. for me, this week's more spot, or dosing more nitrates. Or, yeah. I can get, I can get away with once a week, Yeah, but the sweet spot is twice a week. So it's like Monday and then like Thursday, Friday, and it'll be a light film, but because, because we'll do it, you know, very diligently, 
we don't really have coralline buildup um, in the on the on the aquarium glass. And then that being said, you know, once you've got a good algae scraper um, and you replace the blades frequently and a good uh, squeegee for the outside, one simple long handled scraper to get the edges and the corners. That part I'll do about once a month. Yeah, yeah. My new tank has those uh, armored seams, and it's great because I can just clean the corners with reckless abandon. And I just use the Tunzi scraper and I just literally slide it into those bumpers, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. just go nuts. Um, and dunk, 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 dunk. Yeah. And it's, it's made me go, okay, well, it was nice from a, you know, you don't accidentally mess up the silicone uh, while you're cleaning, but knowing mm -hmm. that you can just be a little rougher in those corners and get like this perfectly clean front display, like any future tank, if I were to custom order it, I would pay the the nominal tiny fee to add those so i'm i'm pretty confident that you know except for like maybe aquascaping aquariums you want ultimate clarity everywhere in the future every tank above a certain size let's say you know four feet or something um it'll be armored seams all around that's just gonna be normal you probably have to ask to not have them if you want to have that ultra clean museum uh you know nature scape or whatever but yeah that's one of those little things i'm like you can tell that that is that is going to be uh, standard on tanks uh, up to a certain size down the road for sure. The only downside about them is that they themselves develop coralline and that mm -hmm. is visible. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so I've got like a rough brush sometimes that I'll clean that up, but I honestly just let that be like it doesn't deter from my uh, view. So cool. I think I think we've said more than anyone has ever said about the benefits and importance of keeping the glass clean. <laughs> Well, what about the back glass? Like that's, that's always a. Uh, I put that down as yeah. totally optional. That is completely optional. I got some tanks where I used to really, really keep it clean and others where I just let it become a starry night of, you know, those little white encrusters. Um, that one's, that one's totally a personal preference. You know, sometimes it really showcases your corals that have that stark black glass. And other times it's also super cool to have, you know, core line and just like a living layer populate the back glass that eventually is becomes, you know, corals and sponge and sea squirts. And for sure, if you have, uh, you know, lots of little fish um, or even like schooling fish, they are much more likely to kind of school along that back glass when it's populated by a bunch of stuff, especially if it's a nice layer of core line algae. Um, my opinion, that's firmly personal preference. How do you feel about it? Yeah, I go back and forth. Some, sometimes I get back there with um, a paint scraper from Home Depot where you can get like mm -hmm. the replaceable razor blades and pop them in. And you can go to town and clear up that uh, coralline. And I definitely love that look, but I also let it go sometimes. And um, I sort of like having that substrate in a way for, you know, all the copepods and everything to go you know, like that's like their safe zone. And also like, you you know, we've got all these snails, right. That are cruising around the glass. No, and no. I do. No, we don't. Um, <laughs> but you know, given the, the only thing I don't like about letting the coralline go buck wild back there is if you do a large water change and you're kind of busy for a while and then you refill it. And then a week later, that exposed layer of coralline that was exposed to air kind of whitens out and you can just mm -hmm. tell where the water was, um, drop down to in your water change. Um, so that's kind of one bummer about it. I feel more strongly about keeping the return lines clean. Yeah. It's just too easy to pop them off, throw them in some acid, 
you know, scrub them down. I mean, this is like a twice a year thing, you know, while you're doing other stuff. Um, but one thing that we do here uh, pretty diligently about once a month is clean the overflow teeth. Yeah, that's on my list. Uh, clean those overflow teeth. Um, the Battle Corals Battle Brush. Oh my God, there's one end. It's like a really stiff brush. If you haven't heard about it, I did a whole little article on Reef Builders about it. Um, but it's got one really narrow, super stiff bristle side. Perfect for getting there. We also might use like a dental pick or something to uh, to scrape off those teeth. So yeah, I feel way more strongly about keeping the overflow teeth clean um, because as that o- those overflow teeth get clogged, it's holding more water in your tank. That itself is not a problem, but I do use a stable water level as an indicator of how clean my return pump is. But more importantly, if you have, you know, a, kind of a, a semi dam in your filter teeth holding back the water, um, if you have a large surface area tank when the power goes off, that's a lot more water that your sump is going to have to uh, catch from that disconnected uh, water flow and just, you know, just... It, be in tune with your aquarium. Everything that could be cleaned should be cleaned. So that's how and I feel about the, the back glass. Too. Uh, once they get clogged in certain yeah, areas, a little bubble a algae point. grows in between certain teeth, you start to have channels where they're, you know, and and then you're like, what is that new noise? And then you you clean your overflow teeth and it's back to quiet, you know? What's funny is I, I experienced that a lot more on my freshwater aquarium, my Zebra Placo uh, Angel and Discus tank. Um, it's got those Malaysian trumpet snails, despite my best efforts. I mean, they're way down from what they used to be, but they are uh, like a big one will get stuck in a tooth or two. And then you can hear like a dribble, dribble coming out of that overflow yeah. and just like, what's that? Ah, uh, of course it's a little trumpet snail little bastard all right before we get into some um some obvious stuff i'm gonna talk about maintaining heaters did you see the couple sentences i wrote down on there yeah you have a really good point on this one um so i didn't think about it until you said it and then it just is like one of those yeah duh anyway (laughs) calcium carbonate dissolves in cold water, that's why there's no limestone below 4,000 meters. I think that's a com- carbonate com- compensation depth. Um, and inversely, um, at high temperatures, uh, calcium carbonate will precipitate. Well, if you don't have really great flow, or even if you do have great flow around your heater, um, over a long enough timeline, depending on you know what you're keeping your tank at and how concentrated the heating element is of your heater, it's going to calcify around that heater. And what happens? It's going to get hotter over time as it you know grows its own limestone blanket, and that's I guarantee you know like the the kind of people who have heater failures who never really notice this, they're not the kind of people to have noticed that there that there's a little pile of limestone you know semicircles raining down from underneath their heater element. But over a long period of time, you never do think your heater. It's just like it's trying to heat your tank through the limestone. And it's just baking the internals and and probably overheating the glass or whatever element you have. Probably less of an issue with titanium heating elements. But either way, you want everything operating nominally. And so, goodness gracious, man, once a year, once a year, pull your, pull your, even every two years, just do it sometimes. <laughs> my my, my, my uh, recommendation to people is it's like, if you can't remember the last time you did any maintenance, you need to do it. If you can at least remember when you did it, you, you might be good. But a heater, like once a year, every two years, 
turn it off, <laughs> then pull it out and put it in some, you know, a little acid solution for 10 minutes. And you won't, you might not even have to scrub. It might all, all be gone, but you do not want to have a heater failure. We already talked about, you know, the, the long tail of, uh, of copper and heavy metal poisoning. I'll tell you what, man, a failed uh, heater um, is just practically a reset for your entire reef tank. It is not a good time. I mean, if it fails off, awesome. Uh, if it fails on, it's going to cook everything. If it breaks and liberates its internals of all those, you know, metal components, oh my goodness, you'd rather have your tank cooked at 100 degrees than poisoned with metal. Yeah. For sure. I'll take that five times over poisoned once because at least you can restart right away. <laughs> So yeah, a heater is a super easy thing. You're like, wait, there's no moving parts. But I mean, there is a little bit of, you know, a thermostatic switch inside. Um, just pay attention to everything. And a heater is one of the most important things when it fails. Oh, it can be a bad time. And all you got to do is pull it out, stick in some acid for five minutes. You might not even have to scrub it. And then you won't have to worry about that for another year or two or five. Yeah, heaters. And I mean, I know we're going to talk about return pumps, so I don't want to go all in on it, but... I think a lot of people don't clean heaters and return pumps because, you know, they're, if you take a heater out for eight hours, you're going to have a problem, right? Or a return pump. But one, you should always have redundant return pump and heaters, right? That's, that's in my book. Just on hand. Yeah. And I mean, me personally speaking, I like to use the same brand so that, and then, and then, you know, make them as hot, not hot swappable. Um, no, I got you. I'm following. But, but swappable as possible. And, and one, it makes maintenance easier because I pull one out, put a new, put the, um, the backup in and it becomes primary. And then I could just take my sweet time cleaning the other one when I get down to making a little citric acid bath down in the basement, whatever. Um, and then once that guy's clean, he's on the shelf and he's now my backup. And then I, I tend to do that with my heaters and return pumps quite, you know, like, um, I think, I, I think I do it like every six to eight months, you know, it's probably, mm -hmm. I should do it more often, but your heater or your return pump both. And oh, okay. that's um, a great tempo. That's a great tempo. That gives you some peace of mind. Anytime you leave, you're like, I recently cleaned that pump probably two years ahead of schedule. I know it's fine for another two. Yeah, I mean, I probably slip to a year sometimes, but at the end of the day, one, you have a backup. Two, you get to inspect these things, right? The mm -hmm. ones that were in at the running. At your leisure. Yeah, no, at that's your an leisure. Awesome point. And you don't, it's like, okay, if that heater is in a citric acid bath and you go off to your kids, you know, sport event on the weekend and you forget about it, it's not like your tank's going to be 60 degrees or not 60 degrees, but you know, room temperature when you get back, right? Like it's, it's like you, you swapped it out. The only caveat there with heaters is you have to calibrate them. Like I like the Evo heaters and I can set two of them to 80 degrees, but they're going to set my tank at different temperatures, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Evo is one that you can recalibrate. Um, I use a John Len. It has a little um, uh, calibration screw on the back of the external yeah. thermostat. Um, but yeah, that's And if you that's use like thing. an ink bird and you're using a titanium heater, it's even easier because the ink bird you don't swap, right? And it's the controller. So mm -hmm. you're just swapping out the heating element and the ink bird is the one that decides. Um, I, I have that sitting on a shelf that I had running on an old tank and I just haven't swapped over to it. But yeah. 
Yeah, funny story. I got the BRS combo for, um, you know, the Shago heater with the Inkbird thermostat on my fish tank. It never turned on because I have a full-on cover covering the entire <laughs> fish tank so it doesn't evaporate much. The fish don't jump out and it never turned on. So it's just like it's been in the tank for so long. I'm like, finally pulled it out because um, at the very most, I actually need to cool the tank a little bit in the summertime. So I'm looking forward to getting a little bit more of an open top. But um, yeah, I think we just said more about aquarium heater maintenance than anyone has ever said ever <laughs> and we'll, we'll continue that i want to come back to the recalibration Make that a trend <laughs> i want to come back to the recalibration of um all devices but uh i think the, the, one of the biggest meat and potatoes of aquarium maintenance is going to be pumps and i'll yeah. say it again if you have moving parts just like your car just like a cheese grater or a coffee grinder, or anything that moves like it needs to be serviced if you want it to last. You know, clean pumps are not only more efficient, meaning they pump more water, but also means that they're going to run quieter, they're going to run cooler, precipitate less calcium, and they're going to last a lot longer. I'll tell you what, though, the peace of mind when you are away or out of town, knowing that you've serviced that pump within recent memory is going to be worth so much more. You know, the, the, the chances of failure are still pretty low. But when you're out of town, you don't want to be thinking, oh, man, I wish I'd remembered to do that this last three calendar years, you know. Um, and another thing is I've seen hobbyists adding pumps to their tanks because their flow uh, wasn't what they wanted to be. But the pumps that they had in there before were just like – they were like the back glass we were talking about, just yeah. covered with like vermitids and sponges and coralline. And there's like pumps everywhere. I'm like, dude, clean your original pumps. I'm, I'm thinking of a particular hobbyist. <laughs> but um, yeah, keeping those pumps clean is you know going to prevent you from having to add more pumps. Right. And that's, that was one of the silly things that I've seen happen a lot where hobbyists, uh, especially some of the cheaper pumps, um, I'll say this again, like G-Bows in the past had a reputation for being demagnetized. I know someone was really confused, but anything that can be magnetized can be demagnetized and they lose power over time. But that's not what we're talking about. Um, but a good quality water pump, um, we've, we've talked about the reef waves. Right, the gyre turbine thing, dude. I get six weeks before I'm at like fifty percent of of output at a hundred percent. I love those, but I I went back to Tunzi's because of the ease of maintenance. Right? I don't blame you. I mean, I don't blame um, it. I I use the gyres on on like a specific you know mass water movement water flow regime on a peninsula style tank. It totally works. Um, it's not that big a deal to clean out the reef waves. I wish we didn't have to, but it's like, it's six weeks. We literally put a little, um, yeah, like paint marker thing on one edge of the tank. So we know, and it's about six to eight weeks. It goes from hundred percent. And you know how we gauge it two ways. One sound. First of all, and there's one in particular, we've tried all the bushing things. I know like people are like, Oh, change the bushings or the bearings or whatever. I'm like, no, we've done all that stuff. Um, but one of them will literally start the very slightest whine. At six weeks, but we are intimately familiar, and by we, I mean me and Evan, um, on how the reef waves are directed against the glass to really push the water all the way down to the end and back around, and we know exactly how big the the waves should be coming out of the outflow, right on on the edge of the tank. 
I even I even like drew it out one time. I just kind of outlined it, and we just watched it go down, 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 down week after week. So the yeah, giant pumps, uh, they're awesome. But um, I don't know. Maybe it's just like so many contacts, so many you know surfaces for contacts. Two at least two for each turbine. Not to mention what's happening inside the rotor and all my biofilm will just cripple that thing. Yeah, I mean I've gotten away with um, you know putting them in a bucket and running them with citric acid and just letting mm-hmm. them clean themselves, but. I, eventually, you got to get up in there and and scrub stuff out. And we don't see, we do not see mineral buildup. No, I get no, the not, um the little. Are you using are you using shires? Yeah, uh, by Maxpec. Okay, so for us, it's the Reef Wave. I didn't. I have Jump and Maxpec pumps and some other tanks, and those can actually run a lot longer. But it's just they're not like the primary pumps. So those things can go down to thirty percent. They're actually pretty yeah. big pumps. But the Reef Wave, um, it's biofilm. It's totally biofilm. Yeah, I never had that problem. I would get the um, those little one millimeter snails would get um if you look at the the turbine inside right it's kind of like fins and they would get Mm. up in those fins and stuck in them um and that that probably didn't who knows how much of an impact that did but it's like you know running it in citric acid is gonna it's gonna take a long time for those little shells to dissolve out so do not try this at home but we never use citric acid we use sulfuric acid here yeah, I'm done with um well I'm I tried the um what's the stuff they sell at Home Depot? God, that's just brutal. Muriatic? Uh, yeah. Uh and then that's what we use. I'm oh, sorry, not sulfuric. We use muriatic acid. Oh yeah. No no problem. Oh, no. I mean Yeah, oh yeah. Well I mean we have a big open space. If we yeah. really work on something, we'll actually put it outside. And we're talking like five, 10, 20 minutes max if something's incredibly calcified. But that way you don't have to wait, you don't have to like think about oh i'm gonna set this in the citric acid and then wait three weeks <laughs> for xyz to dissolve um and we'll um we'll take pumps off in place you know i got all my cables really well managed and i just put up a stool bucket put the pump in there turn it on run it and then after it's done running for a little while we'll just kind of maybe maybe run it in some fresh water but it's just acid right so it's not a big deal diluted acid first of all yeah if you don't know what you're doing do not do what we're talking about first of all uh May his rest be long and placid, that boy added water to the acid. That boy did what he ordered, he added acid to the water. Always add acid to the water, just a little bit, will go a long way. And yeah, we're never working with pure acid, that's that's super important. But yeah, if you're not comfortable with um, laboratory techniques of acids and bases, don't even try. Don't even think about it. Forget what I just said. I had a one gallon of muriatic acid sitting on a steel shelf. And... Um, one of those kind of metro shelves, if you guys know what that is. Uh, maybe you don't, but it's like one of those where you metal racks where you can adjust um, mm-hmm. the shelving. But anyway, and it, it was near an aquarium in the unfinished part of my basement. And I just noticed that the whole shelf was just deteriorating with rust and just stuff. And I, I just kept assuming it was my tank, right? Like salt spray. Oh. And then I finally put two and two together that even though I had a cap on it, just the minute amount of gas escaping that bottle, it was all because the other side of the shelf was totally fine. It was just where that bottle was. Um, I know citric acid has gotten a little more expensive with inflation and all that, um, but I just get it on Amazon it's so much, it doesn't smell, it's not like, even vinegar to me, I hate the smell of vinegar, right? Like this stuff doesn't smell, it's easy, like if you've only got one tank, in your case where you're maintaining 
a crap ton of return bumps, right? And I low bumps. relish it. Right. I, but I, for I somebody who has like one return pump and has a backup that they need to clean and swap out, like a little citric acid is so easy and so low risk to deal with. Like you can stick your hands in there and like it might irritate your hands like a little bit. I mean, it's still mm-hmm. an acid, don't get me wrong, but you're not going to cause like, you know, the fumes aren't going to piss off your wife or anything like that. So Right. No, it's, it's better to be safe. Um, so, yeah, you know, definitely your propeller pumps, your water movers, you know, they, are, you know, and I would say like your Corellias and like those style of pumps, you know, you've seen them like uh, even a smaller Tunzies rated like three, four, five watts. That's in like a vacuum. That's in like a laboratory settings with zero obstructions. The moment it creates a biofilm or, you know, eventually also some calcification, you are losing so much performance, so much outflow. Um, your return pumps and trifugal pumps, um, they have a lot more torque and power associated with them. So they are a lot more forgiving and, um, you're not going to lose nearly as much power. So um, I would say we clean our flow pumps besides the Red Sea Reef Wave. That one's like every six weeks, like clockwork. Um, I would say like, you know, Vortex and Nero's maybe every three to six months, depending on the tank. And the larger the pump, you know, like the, the, they have more tolerance for for that you know obviously a smaller pump the smaller tolerance the more a little bit of biofilm really affects them but return pumps it's once a year and i really like to uh for the return pumps because they're so critical it's like new year beginning of the year i want to know that i've uh, you know everything's had a once over in the previous 12 months um so right you know um from december to january i'm just really aiming to make sure every return pump's been taken apart and cleaned and Guess what? We do it often enough. Um, I'm trying to think. The the closed loop pumps, so the Vectra M2, the CHA 9.0, and the Aqua B up 8000, those are pushing a ton of volumes in tanks with like a, a lot of um, of detritus, a lot of funk in the water, a lot of life in the water on those tanks. Those need to be, you know, those really need to be cleaned. But again, we're using those for flow. Um, but like return pumps, I have uh, Max Spec Jump, the Vectra L2, a CHA 7.0, another Vectra L1, and uh, Deltec E-Flow, and maybe a couple others. Um, those about once a year. And when we clean them, it's there's you know we first of all we run them much lower than full power yeah like we almost nothing runs at full power here except maybe for our flow pumps not our return pumps um so we'll open this up and it's just biofilm you know not calcification so maintenance is also like you know preventative so running those pumps at slower speeds um, prevents them from getting hot because you're not running them at their limit and they'll have much 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 less calcification. Yeah. That I being run. said, I uh, the Vector L1 on the uh, quarantine system went like two and a half, almost three years without a cleaning because when I installed it, I didn't put a uh, union valve on it. And so one day I was working on the tank and I went to turn it back on. I said, nope. I said, nope, nope, nope. And even I'll stick my finger in the, the intake of the volume and try to push it and it wouldn't move. So I had to like unscrew the volute, right? The volute was like st- – yeah, plumbed in. So I just unscrewed the pump from the volume and then clean it that way. That was poor planning. But I just, I just didn't want to get a two inch union. I just didn't want to. <laughs> so you know, you can get away with it for a long time, but goodness, you do not want that pump not to restart when you're not here. 
when you're not well, around. And, you know, you mentioned the copper bomb. I mean, how many hobbies have we known where it happened because of uh, an internal pump, right? So it's a good time to inspect, right? Like you clean it up, take a good look inside, you know, just look at it, inspect it, look at the uh, impeller, you know, is there anything broken on the impeller? And then, you know, you put it back in service and you have that peace of mind that you're not going to... You will see... Pumps are so good today. You know, we're, we're even like talking about some of these relic things about reef aquarium equipment that is much more rare. But, you know, certain pumps back in the day, um, one, one, one that came to mind was maybe something like the really older PSK or CJ pumps, um, the Vertex, uh, what they call it? They, was it just called the V6? Um, and you know, pumps in the back in the, I don't want to keep saying back in the day, but in history, certain pumps that really were AC powered, um, they would show swelling of the impeller or the impeller shaft long before it ever ruptured or corroded. And another thing that I do is, you know, a lot of these, um, uh, internal water pumps have like a back plate on them. Always take the back plate off. I always take it off. Some of them are actually designed to pull water through to kind of cool the back, but yeah. I always pull the back plate off because you can have cracking of the epoxy. Yeah. Um, uh, on that backside and you, you know, you might inspect your pump normally and just not realize that there's a whole nother face to the pump that, uh, is exposed to seawater. I used to do that with my Eheims. I'd pull the backs off. Yeah, you know, some of the older, older school pumps that are still being sold, still being made, um, you know, I read, read 20 something years. Yeah, you know, the buildup of like uh, heating, uh, you know, expanding and contracting was eventually going to cause some cracking to that epoxy. Yep. Um, anything else you want to comment on about like return pump maintenance? No, I mean, like I said, it's, obviously flow pumps definitely agree with you that you know you, you'll corals grow reduce the ability for the flow to get to where it is but a lot of times i think people blame flow issues to uh <laughs> inadequate maintenance on their pumps um and again i mean i know i've said it before but you know, when you got like some spare cash laying around, pick up the exact return pump you already have and put it on a shelf and just swap them out from time to time. It makes the whole cleaning job, especially, and if you have like a union, right? Like like what you're talking about, like a quick disconnect, um, have the same one on the other one. So it's just a quick swap. Mm -hmm. uh, I just can't emphasize, you know, it kind of stings when you think about how expensive some of these pumps are. I mean, I'm sure somebody that has a... um Gosh, what are those new pumps that are like two grand? Yeah. <laughs> That'd be a hard pill to swallow to spend two grand and put something on a shelf, right? I, I don't use those pumps, but... um, I, I think you got it right, though, with the union, right? Yeah. You don't have to replace the exact pump. Yeah. But say you have an Abyss or Vectra or Synchra, that's your like your main return pump. Um, there is no shame in having a backup mag drive that, you know, you've outfitted with the same connectors yeah. for hot swappability, you know, just in that moment of uh, desperation. You know, you don't want to be uh, stuck in, you know, local fish store owner's phone number late at night on Facebook or whatever, trying to get him to open the store and sell you a pump um, when you really need it. But, uh, but yeah. Flow pumps, you know, those are super important, obviously, for the health and long-term health of your tank. But return pumps, critical. 
absolutely critical. And so there's definitely different degrees of attention that needs to be paid regarding aquarium maintenance on different types of um, uh, aquarium equipment. And I think uh, the next one to really get into is protein skimmers. Now, I want to tell a little story. I think I've told it before on here, but I gave, I was supposed to give a talk at MACNO one year about aquarium maintenance. Like I said, this is a topic I take really seriously, really near and dear to my heart. And I started out the talk by, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, people are semi-intelligent like me and it's part of their routine to clean some of this stuff. And I was just asked the crowd, right? I pulled, uh, you know, the listeners, um, you know, how long has it been, you know, has it, how long has it been since you cleaned your protein skimmer? Raise your hand if it's been three months. No one. Raise your hand if it's been six months. Maybe one person. Raise your hand if it's been one year. Maybe two. Raise your hand if you've never cleaned your protein skimmer. Almost all the hands went up. And after the talk, I had, I had to quickly like pivot the entire uh, kind of direction of the talk from how to do the maintenance to the importance of doing maintenance like we're talking about now. And at the end of the talk, I had so many people come up to me and just like, I never knew. I never knew to clean my Venturi aspirator valve for the you know, air to get through. I never knew to take my pump apart. And people always ask me how. I'm just like, start taking things apart and just remember how they go together. It's that simple. You know, you, it's not like electronics where, you know, you can make a little mistake that's going to brick the whole thing. It's all, you know, fairly electromechanical. Um, you just put it back the way it came, you know, it, it was put together and you, you should be good. Um, and so for protein skimmers, um, again, that's not nearly as critical as a return pump, but we've all been there. And I've been there too, where you, you know, uh, you get a new skimmer, it's freaking rocking. You know, and just without thinking about it, every couple of months, you should just raise that water level just a little bit and then a little bit more. And then maybe six, nine, 12 months down the road, you can't raise it no more. And then you're looking at your skimmer, you're like, man, that's not as cloudy as I remembered it. And people will think that their skimmer's broke or something. I'm like, it's broke because you let it get broke. You know, it's not broken or, you know, uh, damaged. It just, just take it apart and clean it. You're going to have to turn that water level down. But especially with, the, you know, we already talked about how the biofilm and the friction that creates um, is going to really reduce the flow speed of your impeller. But especially with needle wheels, that needle wheel impeller, you know, when it's brand new, um, those sharp edges really help to break up the bubbles into more numerous and smaller bubbles. That's going to create the, the large surface area that you want. Um, and then as it gets filled with biofilm, um, it softens those blades, those pins. And it's going to create larger and fewer bubbles, reducing the surface area, increasing that turbulence. And um, it's it's like magic, man. If you've had a skimmer a year and you've never cleaned it, clean it one time. You're just going to be like, oh, my God, I, was about I to forgot go how it's supposed to be. <laughs> I, I, I think most people who have had a skimmer a long time and have cleaned it have had that moment where they they clean it, they throw it back in the sump, and they're like, holy hell. <laughs> you know, It's just, it's always I was shopping crazy. for a new protein skimmer, and I didn't realize I just needed to clean it. Yeah. Just needed to clean and it. And I've been burned so many times by calcification in the air intake, you know, and then you take it all apart, you get a little dental pick or something, and you scrape all of that Paper out. Clip. 
paper, paper clip. clip. Yeah. I have a few paper clips running around just to actually, you know what? We don't even get to that point because about once a month, I'll, you know, boil up a kettle of hot tap water and we'll just run it through there, you know, uh, a few skimmers per kettle. Uh, I don't know, maybe like once a month. And it's also kind of preventative. Another thing that we'll do is when you turn off the air, your, your pump runs in such a way that it will, to some degree, eject a lot of particles and, and crud that's stuck in the impeller. Yeah. Right. Because it's, it's meeting with more resistance from the water that helps to flush it out. Um, that's not going to really prolong, uh, the maintenance interval for a protein skimmer with a needle wheel. Um, but it'll buy you something. And also those, those pins, man, there's all different kinds of, of needle wheel impellers. I've done some crazy stories, you know, documenting needle wheel evolution over the last 15, 20 years. Do you, do you remember the mesh needle wheels? It was oh, like I still a sponge remember. or something on top. Yeah. 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 Uh, there's some pretty interesting designs that are still being um, put forward in out of Asia. They're hybrid, you know, and then they're like a needle wheel sandwich with like a little bit of mesh in the middle. Um, but yeah, also, you know, if it's been a long time and you have a, like a lot of sand in your tank or a lot of little snails that you're talking about, those little guys will get stuck in the, yeah. the impeller. And that's going to unbalance your impeller, causing more rubbing with the main body of the water pump, making it noisy, and it's going to help make it wear out quicker. So, man, this is one of those things that's just so important. Keep your skimmer clean. And then while you're at it, just clean up the body because it looks cool. <laughs> just keep that body clean so it looks cool. Yeah, and going back to what I said earlier about eating crow, um, I'm telling you, man, like if you're if you're somewhat – diligent about just keeping that skimmer cup and skimmer lid clean you just are always going to have a much better long-term performance with that skimmer than if you let's say clean it i mean i remember um long ago i got i finally got like a quality skimmer and i reached out to the manufacturer and i was like you know how often should i clean the cup out and he was like every three days take it to your sink and clean it and that was, I think it was the ATB guys that told me that. I was like, that's crazy, man. Like I'm a, I'm crazy a once time. every week kind of guy. I got, I got a life. Yeah. But they're not wrong, man. Cause now I, 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 I mean, I'm not perfect, right? Like I have busy weeks, but when, um, when it's just a normal week, man, I try to pop that thing off now three, um, every three days. I was really? hoping to get away with it with the Dell tech. Um, but I'm, I've started to do it on the Dell tech as well. And and maybe that's why I've always gotten away with smaller skimmers because I've always thought the skimmer ratings were kind of nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe just mm-hmm. a smaller skimmer that you keep keep clean, you know, beats the uh, the not, like not just the cup, but you know, like top to bottom operation. Yeah, I mean, it's like what you said about the pumps, right? If somebody puts like a four hundred gallon skimmer on a two hundred gallon tank and they're like, it's perfect, it's like. But the guy cleans it once a year. It's like, yeah, you probably chose the right skimmer. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, it's a really incredibly dynamic piece of equipment and it's more critical to keep your return pumps clean because that will lead to cascading reactions that will kill your tank. But when it comes to protein skimmer performance, you know, don't talk to me about this or that skimmer if you're not a real regular cleaner because you won't really know your, your skimmer performance degrades the moment you're done cleaning it and you put it back in your tank. Like just, just like that. Mm Mm-hmm. Just like that. Um, all right. We've covered flow pumps, return pumps, protein skimmer pumps. Um, do we have those really well covered, Mark? I think so. All right. So next, I would say is a little bit less critical. 
and still kind of a newer thing because peristaltic dosing pumps are really new, but a really simple practice in addition to making sure to replace um, your peristaltic tubing or just the dosing pump heads, depending on your model, is just once a year, just pass a ton of fresh water through it, right? I know a lot of the additive makers are trying to make their solutions incredibly concentrated. And so if you have thin lines that, let's say, uh, pass by a power supply, that heat, like we talked about earlier, can create calcification within the lines, you know, so I've had this happen in, in, in various ways where um, a very concentrated solution, I don't remember whose additive it was, um, calcified inside the lines um, just because it was like right at that edge of being super saturated and it just needed a tiny nudge to become calcified. And I don't know how long it had been since I cleaned it. It was really early days of um, dosing pumps. I want to say it was, uh, uh, God, I think this company was called Coral Shot. Poland or something like way, 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 way back. And, um, yeah, you don't want to have calcification in your lines. Just run a bunch of hot, fresh water, just like it was a protein skimmer. And then you won't have to worry about it probably for two years, but you know, you do it once a year, you get that peace of mind, easy peasy, but especially with the continuous dosing pumps, something about that constant action really flattens down the peristaltic tube a lot more than periodic dosing pumps. They're just, you know, pulsing a little bit of additives into your tank. Yeah, for I, I've got a lot of uh, peristaltic pumps because um, I use them for dosing. I use them for uh, automated water exchange. I use them for uh, auto top off as well. And um, the ones I'm mostly paranoid about are the uh, the ATOs, which are uh, the SpectraPure um, dosers. And then mm -hmm. I've got a dose that I I do occasional water changes with. And if those, if the tubing breaks on those, I could have a catastrophic issue. Mm -hmm. um, for example, my water exchange doser is one floor down from my tank. If the tubing cracks, I could have a continuous siphon, right? Um, so, and I have some controls like I, because I don't do what some people do where they just do automated water changes just nonstop. What I do is I, I plan it for a 24 hour period and I open up a valve on the um, on the RO type tubing, the mirror lock tubing, whatever, and that way, even if the even if a siphon was created, there's no there's no pull because the valve's closed, right? Um, but uh, those things operate at a much higher frequency. Well, the the water change goes very quickly, right? So it's it's a lot of abuse, and then the ATOs uh, that that thing runs. I mean. How many times a day? I, I'd have to, I don't even, I couldn't even begin to tell you. I hear it all the time, right? So those I'm mostly scared of failure on. So I have it on my calendar just once a year to swap out that tubing. And maybe mm -hmm. I should do it more, but um, I, yeah. that's where I feel comfortable doing it. So those those things are, people kind of treat them like set and forget, but they're not, right? Those dosers. What it, What is set and forget in a reef tank? Nothing. <laughs> yeah. The stand? And the glass tank. Oh, and yeah, I cannot okay. Think of, I cannot think of another thing that doesn't need to be serviced. It's funny, though. You know, we Bulk used to have the... We used to have Bulk the, hits. Should, yeah. You should be good for 10 to 15. You know, if you got good quality bulkheads, I mean, if they crack the crack, you replace them or whatever. Yeah. The only thing that's set and forget is your stand, you know, maybe your sump, your tank, and your bulkheads. Right? So, if it's not part of that entourage, it needs some looking after. Well, it's like the PVC piping, you know? I mean, 
that'd be a pain in the butt to replace, but we're going to get there. Yeah. We're okay. Gonna get there. I got it on the list, but yeah, yeah. we got to flow while we're talking. We're still talking about the peristaltic pumps. So recalibrate them. Yeah. Right. Oh, as yeah. your, tu- as your tubing is getting flattened and then you replace it, just recalibrate it. And the more often you do it, the more familiar you will be with it. You are not going to have to uh, download the manual and find out how to recalibrate it. But if you're, you know, a stickler for um, dosing and precise and accurate dosing, um, that starts with calibrating your pump. It's the easiest thing to do, especially, goodness, I mean, which pump doesn't do it? A Camware, Red Sea, Vectra, Centia? Those are all like, you know, it's like you can't even use them until you calibrate them. I even had right? a really, um, it was a terrible unit because it, um, it had a weird bug in it. And I apparently I could ship it and get a firmware update to fix it. But it was like an old school bubble Magoo. But that even had calibration on it. Right? <laughs> Dude, the, ter- the, the if you DIY'd a peristaltic pump with your own motor, peristaltic pump heads, and some basic programming, you could make the... The, the, the trashiest little dosing pump, it's super accurate if you cal- recalibrate it all the time. But, it, you know, if you replace the tubing, you're going to want to recalibrate there. And something that's a little bit less often, but kind of in, in similar to what I was saying about the dosing lines, just running fresh water, just making sure to flush all that stuff off, is dosing containers. Just once a year, just flush it out because those, um, you know, like I said, a lot of companies are trying to get uh, that super concentrated, almost super saturated uh, dosing solution. And you can get some crystals building up in the bottom of your dosing container. Then I think that's going to be really specific to your environmental conditions, like where you keep your dosing container. Um, If it's a little bit warmer, it might tend to precipitate out a little bit more. Um, So, yeah, just once a year, super easy. Just uh, clean it up. Just clean it up. The other thing I like about dosing containers that have measurements on them is, um, you know, if you fill them up exactly the same all the time and you're checking to make sure that they're not empty, I check what levels they're at, right? Because, um, you know, typically with an A-B solution, you you dose equal parts. So you can, it's sort of a nice quick check to make sure that um, your dosing heads, you they may not be calibrated to the exact amount that you were wishing to dose, but at least they're in calibrated against each other, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, a week in, the level in that dosing container should be drop at in equal amounts on both sides. And that gives you kind of a good gauge that things are going as expected. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one more what we're talking about, some of the less critical things, um, like like we just mentioned, there's the only thing that I forget is like your stand, your tank, your bulkhead, and not much else, right? So while you're at it, double check your float valves, double check your float switches, and your electrodes, particular pH. But, you know, once a year or just whenever I'm down there, I'll take my float valve and just flip it back and forth a few times, make sure it's clear. They never give me a problem. Um, um, And your float switches, man, your float switches, uh, if they fail internally, that's one thing. But like on a long enough timeline, you're going to get enough buildup to to where that thing is not going to rise and fall with the water level accurately. And that's just like the simplest way to avoid like, you know, auto top off, just drown your tank and fresh water 
you know, they're also super easy to replace. You know, you can get, you know, five packs of them for like $3 on, on eBay. You know, maybe you don't want to get the super cheapest one, <laughs> you know, but in no matter what kind of top off you have, except maybe the optical ones, um, just, yeah, pull that thing out, put it in a you know, light acid solution or just man mechanically scrub it down. And then you'll have the peace of mind that that is one less thing that can fail in your aquarium. My uh, reef aquarium experience is less about nurturing corals and keeping the conditions Life proper supports. for their growth yeah. than spending an inordinate amount of time avoiding mistakes and disasters. And that's why I don't use controllers. <laughs> it's my one controller job the only, for, for this session. The only floats, the only way I maintain my floats, which is, is so I hate salt creep, right? And I've got like um, one of those Nalgene little um, rinse bottles or flush bottles. Wash bottle. Wash bottle. Okay. And it's filled with RO water and, um, you know, wiping the salt creep that's on like horizontal surfaces is one thing, but it builds up inside your sump on different mm -hmm. little odd, um, odd edges and stuff. And I'll, I'll just squirt RO water on it, which sort of breaks it down and redissolves it. Absolutely. Um, but I always do my float switches too, right? I'll, I'll hose them down with some RO water, kind of jiggle them up and down. Um, and that absolutely, because usually the only problem I have with them unless you've got like a snail problem in your sump, but uh, mostly it's just salt creep. I don't really get a lot of calcification. Right at the, the air water interface. Right. That's exactly where you expect salt one. creep to build up. Yep. That's the exact kind of space. And you know, one way you might be able to reduce that to some degree is putting a lid on your sump or keeping it in a really humid section so that, you know, can evaporate and create that salt buildup in the first place. So that's the smart. If you want to use a, a machine and not gravity to top off your stuff. Um, so yeah, I mean, I feel like some of the stuff is common sense, but it also needs to be said. Yeah. And then, you know, um, I think it's less critical for pH electrodes to be, you know, cleaned and replaced and recalibrated. Cleaning and calibrating those. That's like my, yeah. uh, my flaw, <laughs> but then I don't really so care about pH as much as other people. So maybe that's why. If, it, if you're just monitoring the pH in your aquarium, much less critical. If you're using it to auto-drive your calcium reactor, yeah. that's a lot more important. Um, but one thing that I've done in the past is, you know, I use a really good HANA Bluetooth pH probe. And if I'm running a pH monitor on a particular tank, I don't have to pull it out every time. You know, if I have a, a pH probe that I know is calibrated properly, I stick it in the tank and they're like 0 0.01, you know, with close to each other. I'm like, okay, we're good for another six months. So, you know, I don't necessarily follow manufacturer's advice that you really need to replace them every six months to a year. You know, if I pull out a, a second probe to compare it to and they're like right there, then you're, then you're good. But you definitely want to clean it. Right. It's also going to develop a biofilm. It's also going to, it's in live water. So it's going to develop some encrustation if it's inside your tank. Um, and it'll get covered with some kind of mineral dust, um, inside your calcium reactor. Um, so yeah, I mean, anything that isn't your tank or stand or bulkhead needs to be cleaned. Actually writing it down. So I remember to do that next time. Because I haven't touched mine in ages. <laughs> <laughs> All right. While you're doing that, I want to talk about detritus. Detritus, detritus, detritus. Sanjay famously didn't clean his sump for five or ten years or something, you know, and with mixed results. Um, but detritus builds up in your sump. Just siphon it out. It builds up within your rocks. 
And from a wee lad, for I remember it was one article about Julian Sprung where he talked about using a power head to create like um, uh, intermittent storms in your tank. Just get in there and just kind of blast stuff out. Make sure it's ejected um, in your sand. You know, for I think the solution is not to have sand in the first place. Um, and your single box. <laughs> That's fine. That's also personal preference. Yeah. Um, but it also is going to build up in your overflow box. That's one people forget a lot of times. But having a bunch of sand, uh, sorry, a bunch of uh, detritus, it is biologically active, right? It is basically, you know, 50% just pure microbes. And it's the equivalent of having a, you know, a big fish. If you take all that detritus and put it together, it's all biologically active, which means that it's respiring, it's breathing, it's producing CO2. You want to raise your pH? Start by removing your detritus because that's all just stuff that's breaking down, that's just feeding bacteria and microbes and having a ton of detritus, even in the bottom of your sump, it's all respiring. And it's all ejecting CO2 and it's all depressing your pH. You'd be really surprised. You know, I, I see people like, you know, doing the recirculating uh, uh, soda stuff to absorb CO2 from the air. Meanwhile, they're not addressing some of the really low-hanging fruit for uh, CO2 production in your aquarium. Um, so inside your rocks, I think people think about that. Siphoning your sand, I think people think about that. Siphoning your sump, you know, we've seen some devices from VCA, especially specially designed for sucking that stuff up. But one thing that people always forget is their overflow boxes. Do you know how still it is at the bottom of your overflow box, especially if you have an internal overflow box? You don't even want to look. <laughs> you don't even want to look at that overflow box, man. You know how funky it's going to be in there. That's all your water that passes through and all the heavy bits. They're right there down at the bottom. Um, that's, that's the detritus. But while we're on the topic of overflow boxes, um, that is your refuge. That's a real true refugium for vermitid snails, for sponges, for aptasia. I've talked to people who have gone to war on vermitid snails and aptasia, and they don't can't understand where where it's coming from. I'm like, have you ever drained out your overflow box? Have you ever you know looked in there? You know, aptasia can grow in the dark, right? Especially in overflow box, all that food coming through. Are you thinking about cleaning your overflow box? You got that look on your face right now. <laughs> no, I have a good story about that actually because. Um, I'd say once a, like I said, I, once in a while, I'll get in there with a siphon hose and just um, siphon out the bottom of it, right? And it's always Don't amazing what kind of crap. Mm -hmm. But again, building my last, my current tank, you know, I, I intentionally put the overflow box in a corner because all these tanks with these middle overflow boxes, um, you, it's hard to see what's going on in there. And so I would blindly stick a big fat hose down there and clean it out. Mm -hmm. um, but clearly I was missing some spots and this is a gross story. So when I set up the new tank, you know, I, again, I just like, I hated that I couldn't get into that overflow. Like if a fish got in there, I was like, good luck, you know? Um, but um, anyway, so I drained the tank, I move all the stuff into the new tank and, um, and, I scraped everything in that tank clean, you know, and I gave it a good little bath and everything. And like, cause I was going to sell it. And then there was this putrid smell in my basement near the tank. And I was like, what the hell's going on? And I finally figured it out that, that, you know, there was just a patch of bristle worms still in that overflow box that had died. Right. And that's an awful smell. And I, I finally, I mean, I finally 
had to disassemble all the plumbing and really like I climbed into the tank because the tank was empty and got in there with a shop vac. But it's just, yeah, it just was like this is why I don't like overflows in the back you center don't wall have of the to tank. Get in there with a shop vac if you do it periodically. Yeah, and I'm literally talking like two or three times a year, once a year. Like you don't have to like diligently do it every time. I you think do a the problem change. is I couldn't get the hose in every little nook and cranny because mm-hmm. it was a very narrow overflow box, right? Whereas the new one, I can just walk around the side of the tank and I can see everything going on in that box, right? Which I Absolutely. I personally prefer. Yeah, it takes up a lot of real estate, but um, but yeah, it just went. So my face was going back to that putrid smell when you were talking about. <laughs> you had a look. You had. Yeah, a look I was going like, on. oh man, that was terrible. So one people, one thing people always ask me is like, oh, I can't get into my overflow box. I can't really reach it. And I'm just like, ah, you don't really need to reach it. You want to kill all the vermintids and aptasia? You could fill it with fresh water. Suck it down. Fill it with fresh water. And just whatever water comes out down into your sump, you know, suck that out. Aptasia is tough. Aptasia is really hardy. Aptasia is not going to stand 15 to 20 minutes of pure fresh water. And then if you want to get the snails a little further, boom, I, I would, we do, we muriatic acid certain, like our sumps, like not running, but like attached, mm-hmm. just drain the, drain the water out, fill it with fresh water, put some acid in it, wait 10, 15 minutes. And then everything that, you know, you used to scrub. Now it's like new, brand freaking new. So you don't even have to see inside your flow box, you know, and you can drain out the seawater, try to get as much of the detritus as, as possible out. Then refill it with fresh water with a little bit of acid. You know, acid is not inherently toxic, right? Acids and bases is not inherently toxic. A little bit going back in your tank is going to depress your pH. It's not going to kill everything, no matter what kind of acid it is. And, um, you know, you have a few sections to go down so you can, you know, fill it with acid, you know, a little bit of acidified fresh water that is going to dissolve the vermintids who try to lock themselves up when you fill it with fresh water. And bada bing, bada boom, that's one less thing you can cross off as far as a potential refugium source of aptasia, sponges, and vermintids. Um, so, yeah, I think that was a really important one to talk about uh, because out of yeah. sight, out of mind. I don't, I mean, super I'll, easy I'll be to the forget. first to admit, I am... Um, I don't care too much about detritus. I, I do clean it up when I go do go in for a manual water change, right? I'm not. Uh, I, I'll I'll gravel vac. I'll clean the overflow box. I'll siphon out the sump. But um, especially if you're growing macroalgae in your sump, it is it's gonna have you know all kinds of critters developing. Um, Rockworks another one that I think people. You know, the whole idea of growing coralline algae on rock is is that, you know, turf algae then has a much harder time growing somewhere where something living is already growing, right? Um, and But the problem with uh, detritus and rock work is it, it creates little, little soily areas for like those type of algaes to take root, right? Mm-hmm. So, I always... Uh, I always think that, you know, if you have good flow on your rock work or you base them out during your water changes, it helps in terms of um, continuing to stimulate that coralline growth and also not creating these little nutritious pockets for turf algaes to take root. Um, well, one thing I wanted to mention is a trick that I've kind of developed over the last few years. So as a wee lad, uh, you know, Julian put it, the bug in my head to use powerheads 
for creating storms that really flushes out your your rock work. Um, but if you have a really full tank, that detritus can go all over the place. So one thing that I've taken to doing, um, you know, once my tanks reach about two years, you know, there's going to be a lot more buildup. Like first year, you're coasting, man. You're fine. But after about two years, there's enough life and there's enough buildup and corals and everything um, to generate enough detritus that's going to get stuck in certain places that just won't reach. And I've turned to turning the entire tank into a protein skimmer. I have a very large air pump and I will um, insert a few or at least one large airstone underneath one side of the rockwork then the other side of the rockwork man those bubbles they go through through pukani style rock really porous rock and they lift up everything right it's you're not exactly skimming but you are literally lifting like you've seen if you have enough um dinoflagellates or uh cyanobacteria they, i mean they'll capture air and they'll float to the top so i'll just use like this heavy you know airstorm inside the tank and this is like you never know when you need it it's not a thing that you can point to and look but if you haven't done it for like a year you know that cyano is going to keep coming back that algae is going to keep coming back but using the the, uh, the airstorm method to really just get through the rocks in a way that water flow is just not going to do it as well um oh my god that is how i polish my rockscape and i would say i do that about once a year not every tank needs it Right. Some of my tanks, um, are like 50% lace rock with like virtually no porosity plus some Tonga branch. There's just not the kind of pores that are going to trap that stuff. But some of the man-made rocks where people have just gone a little too far as far as like increasing, uh, porosity, sometimes that backfires and, and traps a lot of detritus. Um, and the airstorm method just lifts everything up to the overflow and then it goes right down to a filter sock, uh, even a nylon filter sock or the automatic filter roll. And oh my Lord, the corals love it. They absolutely love it. You do it once and then something about just just really reducing uh, whatever stuck to them. It, it, it gives them just kind of like a, it's like a bubble bath in reverse. <laughs> you know, I guess it is a bubble bath, <laughs> you know, but you'd be surprised how much it lifts up and, um, you know, a diligent, uh, mold, you know, two, three, four hour uh, airstorm once a year um, in certain aquascapes, it's just going to remove like just the kind of detritus that's going to lead to buildup that's going to cause some kind of full tank syndrome, old tank syndrome uh, symptoms. Um, so that's a funny little hack uh, that I haven't talked about too much. What's your take on, um, I've seen some folks, they, they'll throw an air stone in front of their return pump and then put that on a timer and then turn that on every, you know, like just briefly. No, I mean, I do it once a year once. Yeah. Doing it every day, all the time. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's the answer. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but I do remember the micro scrubbing. That's what it bubbles, was. Yeah. Which I always thought was like just the stupidest name. Is it micro or is it nano? Like which one? Pick one. You know, the words mean something. Um, so this is more like a you know just a maintenance, a periodic thing, not like an everyday thing. Um, but I found you know um, again after after about a tank is a year and a half to two years old, it generates enough de detritus that uh, that's the only technique I've found that will reliably eject a lot of detritus from the aquarium. Um, I, I think we have a couple more points to make but that's just overarching you know anything with a moving part is prone to wear and tear and eventual failure and you need to know that in your bones this is not a guess 
<laughs> this is a fact of life, you know? Um, so we've talked about some of the most critical things, but like, um, I like to rinse off my biomedia. I take my biomedia out of whatever tank, fresh or salt water. I take it straight to the sink and I hose it down and I got a strong pressure washer. You know, if fresh water killed saltwater bacteria, we'd all be washing our hands with salt water to get rid of, of parasites, right? If that osmotic pressure was so detrimental, like that's what we would be doing, but we don't. So I hose my biomedia in just normal tap water. I've always ended up with my freshwater tanks. Like this whole, yeah, like rinse it hot. in your old water in a bucket. I'm like, screw that. I, did I just that. run it under a sink, man. I did that. I totally was that guy. And yeah. then at some point I was just like, I thought about it, the thought experiment. I was like, nah, this freshwater is not going to nuke my bacteria because otherwise we would be using saltwater sterilized freshwater stuff and freshwater star well, sterilized um, saltwater stuff. I mean, I guess everyone's mileage might vary, but I just never, you know, a little bit of a chlorinated tap water coming out of the sink was never really the end game for, you know, nitrifying bacteria. I mean, mm -hmm. is there an impact? I'm sure, but it's, you know, you're, you're, you're sponge. Better than letting the biofilm suffocate itself. Yeah. Right? A long enough timeline, something that's incredibly porous is going to choke. The biofilm is just going to build up. And there's going to be no oxygenation or water flow to those pores where bacteria are. So rinse off your biomedia. Just it's super simple. And I don't even do that often. Like once a year, again, every couple of years or twice a year, just whenever I'm, I'm at there, you know, and it's accessible. And I'll do the same thing to my freshwater, saltwater tank, just hose it down in the sink. Um, Blow out your uh, lights with a compressed air can. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, less critical, uh, some of the newer fixtures, um, the Hydras, uh, the Radions have that removable little kind of intake screen, makes it really easy to actually pull that thing off and just uh, really give a good cleaning. The Red Sea Reflad is super good. Um, you can literally pop the top off and just, just all you see is fan and heat sink. So you can really clean that up, you know, and I'm, I'm inclined, right? So I will disassemble my radions, get in there. And that's it. This is, this is really like your mileage may vary depending on how dusty or how much, how many pets you have in your house yeah. as far as like, um, uh, pet dander and fur getting into your stuff. Um, so you gotta have, have to take that. You know, if you, again, that's one of those things. If you kept it in a clean room, you would never have to clean it. <laughs> you would never have to clean off that dust. But at least the intake—that's a really easy thing. Compressed air. I'd rather have people blow the air through and have that dust, whatever, go into your tank or go around than to never do it. Right. Um, but yeah, the probably number one cause of LED light failure is that fan breaking. And then your light is not broken. It just won't turn on because it's going to get too hot. And that's, that's not really a big deal. Um, calcium reactors, you know, we talked about the float switches because mm -hmm. um, that's what I use. Uh, I use the Deltec Twin Tech for, for that purpose. Um, and I just like it to be cleaned, you know. Uh, if I could, if it was more accessible, I would clean my calcium reactor, you know, more often and top it off more often. Um, uh, it's easy to be like, oh, whatever, I can get out, you know, a year or two if you have a giant calcium reactor and lower demands. But, you know, keeping that calcium reactor media um, tumbled, you know, and just like, you know, cleaned from, from film and the dust and the insolubles and invariably um, are ejected, it's going to increase your dissolution rate. Regardless of pH, right? Keep that stuff clean. Um, I never topped off my calcium reactor. I always, um, when I hit like a halfway mark, I would just empty it and then kind of get all the mud out 
and then yep. salvage what I could and then refill. Um, yeah. It's about two thirds. Yeah, two thirds. So I feel, well, because I, well, it's technically it's half, right? Because you can't fill it all the way. So my calcium reactor uh, main reaction chamber is probably filled like three quarters, right? So when I lose a third of the actual media, so I'm down to two thirds, um, that's when I'll clean it. Well, I what I'll notice is I'll, just like the protein skimmer, I'll start turning it up and I'll turn it up and I'll mm-hmm. turn it up and I hit a certain threshold. I'm like, all right, it's time to clean this. And then I'll refill it with media and I have to turn it down because it dissolves so much better. And I would say, you know, the larger your calcium reactor is, the longer you can get away with that. But if you have a small calcium reactor, eh, you, you know, and depending on your mineral demands, you might be, you know, want to get into that thing twice a year. Yeah, or, I mean, and often. I never ran mine with a, a doser. I always just used a, a needle valve, but I just experienced less clogging of that needle valve if I got rid of the mud, you know, on a on a regular basis. Absolutely. So, mm-hmm. um. And again, the easier you make it to remove that thing and clean it, the better, right? And, and that's, I mean, it's a better topic for the end, but, uh, you know, choose your gear based on maintenance too, right? Like, and and plan the install in a way that you can maintain it. I can't emphasize that enough. I see people's tanks. And that, that also goes back to when you buy stuff, right? When you start to tag on an ozone reactor and... And now you've got a UV sterilizer. Now you've got a Trident. All that crap needs maintenance, right? And factor the true cost of ownership into your decision of like, do I want a Trident? If I want that Trident to make decisions on my dosing, then now I got to maintain the hell out of that Trident because uh, if that if something goes off with that guy, you know, there there could be or your calcium reactor, or whatever. Your, One thing that you know, I thought was shady. Um, about the trident is you had to read the fine print that Neptune Systems recommends sending back the unit every uh, 18 months for refurbishing at a fee of like $100, $150. That's when it was launched. So I don't know how much things have changed. But how many people do you think that got some of the first tridents have already done that? Because it's been two I think years, they right? They have like a maintenance kit for it, right now, or or is that uh, one of the I, other? I don't know, but do, do you think do you think a hundred percent of the first wave tridents have been refurbished either by the user or uh, by the company? I, you know, right? Again, it goes back to to me like the less crap running on your tank, the less excuse you have about being lazy, and just keep that stuff clean. You know, I don't, man, brother. I Amen. hate, you know, having to maintain more things. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So so I have a couple uh, more things I'm going to throw out there. Uh, plastic is not waterproof. Just going to let that sink in for a second. Plastic is water impermeable. It's not the same as waterproof. It's not like glass. So on a long enough timeline, water penetrates plastic. Our... Our... Pumps, our return pumps, they're not potted in plastic. They're potted in epoxy, right? And so with that in mind, on a long enough timeline, water permeates plastic. So every single one of your algae magnets or magnetic mounts 
um, needs to be inspected. That is the silliest reasons to have problems with your tank is you got a cheap algae magnet or algae scraper or algae or magnetic rack or magnetic mounting pump or pump mount and you don't inspect it because I don't know that I've ever had a magnet last forever. Right. I think we talked about this not too long ago where I was just randomly looking at something and I was like, oh my God, that magnet is like corroded as AF. <laughs> it was so corroded. Um, so that is one thing that I also keep in mind now is, uh, you know, keep a look on all those magnets because I mean, that is filled with some, um, pretty intense metals, not just neodymium. It's, a, you know, it's a mix. And if, uh, your magnet, uh, is ruptured, you know, the encasement of the magnet is ruptured. That is the same thing as like poisoning your reef tank. That's just a silly reason to just, you know, go back to the stone age with your reef tank. Um, because some five, $10 algae magnet or magnetic, uh, frag rack, uh, just ruptured on you. Can I, you know? uh, can I just say that, um, one of the accidental, uh, one of the unintended benefits of having a four inch rim above the water with my tank. I, I mean, we talked about this, you know, my water level is about four inches lower than the top of the rimless, which, you know, is different than say your, your, your standard tanks, which are usually like one to two inches. Um, one of the benefits I've, I've picked up on is I can clean the glass and then I just move my magnet above the water. <laughs> It's still mm. on the glass, right? It's still ready to go. Yep, and yep, yep. one, I don't have to worry about the long-term exposure uh, of the plastic housing to the water. But the other thing is like, it doesn't give time for um, for hitchhikers to, or, or for, um, you know, fan worms and things with thick calcareous little, you know, skeletons to grow on it, right? Not skeletons, but tubes, whatever you want to call it. Um so, you know, eventually you're just like the back wall in your tank, just like your power heads, your magnets become like little pieces of live rock. And that's another mm -hmm. way that you scratch your tank, right? So keeping it above the water, like they stay spotless and clean, nothing grows on them and they're not exposed to water. And then when it's time to clean, I just submerge it. Um, so I think more people should do that to their tanks. It's just have a nice four inch rim. It's great. <laughs> Yeah, get your tank to be an extra four inches of glass just so you can pull out that algae magnet out of the water and then it won't get encrusted. But no, that's a good point. And um, I, th I think I just have a couple more things. Um, this is something that's a little bit newer to me because it's newer to the hobby is taking apart your diaphragm valves on your continuous siphon drains. Um, uh, same, kind of like the reverse of the protein skimmer, you keep uh, raising it up on the diaphragm valve. I was noticing that I just kept opening it up, trying to get like that perfect uh, sweet spot. You're talking about the Red and, Sea ones? Uh, Red Sea, water box, cage, you know, they have a diaphragm valve. I think the cage might be a gate valve, but it, just any of those things. Even your ball valves and your unions, like take them apart once in a while. Make sure that, you know, actuate them so that, you know, they're not totally like encrusted closed when you, when you need them. But the diaphragm valve, um, I think it was, it was on the Red Sea and the water box. I just kept opening and opening and opening and it wasn't like giving me the fine grain controls that it had on day one. And I remember we took apart the Red Sea one and there was just like one loose ball sponge. 
one long, one loose, big old ball sponge because I have like these little, um, not quite golf ball, like marble size yeah. uh, sponges that grow all over the place. And there was just one loose one in there. And I'm sure it was just like kind of bouncing around. But man, it was like that's all the water passing through it for years. The biofilm, for some, the, the plastic of the diaphragm valve wasn't really encrusted, but the biofilm was real. <laughs> that was real. And uh, man, sure enough, we took them apart. And they, they, they have little knobbies. You take them apart and pull off the nuts or the screws or whatever. We clean it up and all of a sudden, boom, we were back to like that fine grain control, very similar to a protein skimmer. And then we're really able to fine tune the continuous siphon drain to be really silent. Um, and the thing is, before it got bad, it would we could readjust it it would get silent and then it needed readjusting within like a couple of weeks right but you have a brand new one and a brand new tank you adjust that thing once man you were good for like six months <laughs> you're good for like half a year yeah and so that is one of those little things it's again it's not as critical because we're just talking about noise but as far as like the reef aquarium user experience man just clean that out and so we started touching upon um cleaning out the tubing this again this is not the kind of thing that you're gonna have to really be mindful of for a while um but there are a lot of different options for pipe brushes on like semi-flexible metal coil i don't know how else to describe it you can get them six feet long six feet long you know i, I don't know how critical it is on the return i don't know how critical it is on the drain but just for that added peace of mind on certain tanks that i know have a lot of biofouling we just shove those things down there i you know I actually recently did this on my external overflows on my uh, uh innovative marine nouveau exts i was having a little bit of a challenge balancing out each of the ones because i got four tanks and continuous siphon drains i just noticed they weren't really all on the same level so i took a stiff long bristle brush dude i got this thing at Petco. It was a kit of like four or five bristle brushes from very short and thin and stiff to kind of like long and large and soft. Just shoved it down there a few times and all of a sudden, you know, just made um, getting that continuous siphon drain to be steady um, and balanced so much easier. Yeah, I've always, I'm, I remember reading in, I think it was Delbeek and Julian's book, they were talking about um, these cool like bullets that go through the plumbing and clean them out. Um, you know, sort of like how a bank, um, you know, when you go through a drive-through bank kind of thing. But that's something that I thought about, you know, long-term is just a buildup of like um, calcifying organisms inside your pipes and how do you, you know, keep that clean, especially if you have a lot of 90 degrees and stuff. I, I think at some point a bristle brush may not even keep up, right? Because it's, it's calcified. Dude, I, I'm a big fan of that uridiatic acid. I would put a cap on the on the end mm -hmm. of the drain and i would put fresh water down there with a little bit of acid and just let that do its work you know we're talking about three five-year-old reef tanks with like a bunch of funk in there um but it's it's again on a long enough timeline it will become a problem right vermitids yeah. could just live in there right if you have a vermitid problem like boom there's your you know refugium source right there and man you acidify that water 10 15 minutes and let it drain into one chamber of your sump that you can suck out done problem solved you're good for another three to five depending on your tank yeah and i think if you have unions in the right places so that you don't have to go fishing too deep you know you can kind of get in there too um mm -hmm. in, in key areas and, and do some cleaning um, I mean, I think the last thing I want to mention is uh, measuring tools. Don't take anything for granted. 
your thermometer, your refractometer, um, your pipetter, you know, if you're cool enough to be using a pipetter because you're testing water so often, um, all that stuff needs to be recalibrated or at least, you know, check it, check it against, you know, some other known reference, you know, I, then it's one of those things you don't have to do it very often, every two, three, five years, depending on how much you use it. But, you know, salinity is paramount. Temperature is absolute. You have to get those dialed in and you don't want your tank to be drifting too high or too low for any of those parameters. And it's just simple things to just like kind of get your head around once for, I don't know, 30 minutes, an hour maximum, as far as like how to do it. And then once you've done it, you know, you can revisit that every 24 months and you're, you're good to go. Um, yeah. Yeah. The final thing, I guess I'll just say, and I, I've said it before, but I, I, I guess it, to me, it's a big deal is um, if, if there's some of these random things that you rarely do and this um, discussion popped them in your head, those are the kind of things that I just put in my calendar or in a reminder app. And so once a year, like let's say calibrating your refractometer, right? I just, I randomly, like when I'm having a moment where I think about something like that and I do it, I immediately think, okay, when am I going to do this next? And then I just pick a random reoccurring time frame and I punch it into my smartphone and it'll pop up and it may not do it the day it pops up, right? But at least now it's nagging me like, oh man, this Saturday morning, I'll, I'll, I'll get that done, right? I'll get, I'll, uh, I'll finally take that skimmer out and clean it up. And it's, it, I, I'm the kind of guy that like forgets to grab my kid at the school bus unless my phone tells me, go get your kid right now, right? <laughs> I'm just a space cadet. So, but if it's in my phone and it's punching up and telling me to do something, then I'm good. Like I'll I'll stay on top of things. And Find a system that works for you. Yeah. So Mark's got his notifications on his phone. I've got uh, annual or kind of quarterly cadence um, because we have so many tanks here. I do have like a master spreadsheet where we check off all the things. Um, so yeah, just find something that works for you and. What, what's really cool about this topic is it falls right in the slipstream of what we were talking about last week. You know, when you're not doing things to your tank, that's a perfect time to get in the maintenance done. You know, when you're not working with corals or growing this or installing that or tweaking the spectrum of the dosing, and you've got that stuff kind of coasting, boom, that's a time to, if your tank is mature and older enough, to follow up on some of this maintenance that is going to give you uh, better performance, uh, better stability, and uh, most of all, like greater peace of mind. Um, and, uh, you know, if anyone who's listening or watching this right now has any tips or ideas or, or feedback, back. Um, I think, you know, you and I have collectively learned a lot from uh, the generations of Aquarius that came before us. And I'm sure there's a lot of, of tips and tricks and things to maintain that we may not have even thought about. So go ahead and put those down in the comments if you're watching this on YouTube. And if you're listening to the podcast, I don't know, maybe go find the YouTube video so you can, uh, you know, add us uh, with some of your ideas. Yeah, I'd love to know other suggestions. All re it's like when you brought up the uh, pH probe, I was like, damn it, I got to go do that, you know? <laughs> so uh, 
I'm sure there's stuff that I'm not thinking of that I could add to my checklist. Um, I thought about talking about RO and stuff, but I feel like that's you know, oh, kind of changing out the that's, carbon that's sediment blocks. Yeah. Well, no, that, I mean, people know that, but just um, you know, double checking your your TDS meter, yeah. um, back flushing your your membrane. You know, like I said, I used to be an RO junkie and then had the mechanical one on there. Um, you know, so there's there's like a lot of kind of um, satellite maintenance related to. Uh, maintain aquarium like cleaning your saltwater mixing vat and the pump that runs it once in a while and uh you know i'm sure we didn't cover every single thing but uh you know, aquarium maintenance is my jam um and I, we spent an inordinate amount of time uh keeping things in peak operating condition in order to avoid any kind of problems yeah and i think a lot of the issues that arise mysteriously like old tank syndrome are abated if you if you have um a bit of a schedule on these things you know um and if you do have a disaster it ends up being a minor one um versus a major one so mm-hmm. and it feels good i don't know i mean it's is it a pain it's in so the butt rewarding. to pull your skimmer out of your sump and water gets everywhere and you got to clean it and yeah it's a pain but once you pop it back in and it's running you just feel good it's like you just got a new coral you're like excited you know i got a great follow up to that if you never do it, it's painful. Like going to the dentist, right? If you're not used to going through the motions, if you're not used to pulling up a tray and figuring out, you know, the exact or, or an ideal um, set of movements in order to remove the skimmer or remove the pump without making that mess and not using too much elbow grease by, you know, using some smart techniques like acid, um, then it's painful. But when you do it more often, True. you go to the dentist more often, there's a lot less work for them to do. And same thing with your tank. And like you said, man, I get about as much joy of like a brand new super clean skimmer as I do like, you know, an exotic coral that I got for the first time. It's some, it's, it's really fun. And it's a way to um, uh, do something with your tank without messing with the program of your tank, especially protein skimmer. Cleaner. Yeah. Let oh you, let you so play with your tank instead of, you know, sitting on a forum for six hours reading stuff, you know, go, go clean Second some guessing stuff. Everything you thought you knew. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just go clean some stuff. Yeah, no, that's a good one. I, th- I think this was a really cool um, topic and a, and a long time coming. I know we've had this on our docket for a while. So I hope you guys got a, a, re- a lot out of it. Um, we're really looking forward to Reefstock in Denver. Uh, first weekend of March, go to reefstock.show for more information. Mark and I are going to be doing a live session of reef therapy in Atlanta at the Aquatic Expo. First weekend of April. Looking forward to seeing you, buddy, and seeing your reef tank. Maybe we'll do yeah. a, well, maybe we should do a live it. session at your house, just you and I personally, just talking about your tank, separate from the Aquatic Expo one. Um, but it's going to just really be cool to um, in, interface in real life with real reefers, not digitally, and uh, you know, really going into the, the deep end of reef from aquarium discussion and conversation. So, Mark, I want to thank you so much for joining me on this uh, very important session of reef therapy. If you know someone who's got a nasty reef tank, share this podcast share this video with them they can listen to it while they work on their reef tank i love it it's so meta um make sure to uh i don't know i guess rate us or something on your favorite podcaster give us a like on youtube comment if you have any questions and uh, we'll see you guys next week if we don't see you at some of these upcoming reef shows so until next time until next time all right later mark later